1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. James Cummings to tell us about his book published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022, titled The Everyday Lives of Gay Men in Hainan, Sociality, Space and Time. This book, does pretty much what it says which is fascinating exploring the everyday lives of gay men in Hainan um, in the south of China the book explores a number of aspects of the everyday lives um, individually and then weaving them all together to ask questions about kind of what does it mean to be gay Is that even a term that is relevant in this context? Um, What does it mean? What kind of what, what does a normal life look like? What are conceptions of life? What are conceptions of normal? So there's all sorts of things packed into this book. James, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about it.
0: It's no problem at all. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I'm so glad. Could you start us off, please, with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explain why you decided to write this book?
0: Yep. No problem. So so currently I'm a lecturer in sociology at the University of York. And broadly my research area, I mean most most broadly I would say is sexuality. Um and then within that I have lots of interests in identity, space and time, as you can probably guess from the title of the book, um, also in digital technologies, uh in the ways that people relate to the environments in their everyday lives and how that shapes who they understand themselves to be particularly in relation to gender and sexuality. Um, So where did the book come from? I guess uh, there's a very long history to this book that goes all the way back to my undergraduate degree. So my undergraduate is in Chinese and Spanish, so in languages. And as part of that, I spent a year in Hainan. Um, so Hainan, uh, I guess m- most some people may not know, Hainan is an island off the south coast of China. Um, so I spent a year studying in Hainan as an undergraduate student on an exchange program between uh, my university and Hainan University. And whilst I was there, I made friends in the kind of local gay scene or gay community. Um, and at that point, hadn't really thought about it in particularly academic terms. It was just part of my social life. It was just something that, that I did whilst I was in Hainan and then came back. And in the fourth year of my undergraduate degree, took a module in Chinese gender and sexuality um, and became interested in generally in issues of gender and sexuality in China and began to reflect on some of my experiences in Hainan through that lens. And the more that I looked at the literature, particularly around queer sexualities in China, uh I noticed that overwhelmingly most of the research, particularly at that point, but still today, had focused on some of the biggest cities, so Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou. Um, and and there was just a a complete lack of information or knowledge or or kind of attention to the ways that non-heterosexual people are living their lives and understanding themselves outside of those massive urban relatively wealthy uh settings um, and hainan is a, a different place i mean uh, hainan so hainan is a region it's not a city so it has cities within hainan and then there's towns villages rural areas all within hainan um but generally hainan has been thought of in China or in kind of popular geographic imaginations in China as somewhere isolated, somewhere uh, kind of distant, somewhere thought of as different. Um, And materially, Hainan is also less uh, industrialized, less economically developed and less wealthy than some of the other coastal regions of China um, and hasn't experienced the sets of changes that were discussed in the literature around queer sexuality that were seen as being very important for the emergence of gay identities in China. So particularly um, the emergence of the clear emergence of a middle class uh, engagement with international uh, LGBT activism, desires for some sense of belonging to this notion of a global gay identity and those things didn't seem to resonate quite so much with what i'd experienced in hainan so it became something that was really interested in is what 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 kind of lives are uh, queer people generally but uh, my work specifically is on is on gay men and what kind of lives are they living in hainan and um, so that became a small project that i started to do for a, a masters um, and then that progressed on to the PhD project, which then became the book.
1: Brilliant. Thank you for taking us through the backstory. Um, I always find that a fascinating way to get into the book. We, you, you mentioned a bit the everyday. I mentioned it at the beginning. And I do want to ask you about that as a scale of analysis. But as we've already started talking a bit about Hainan, um, is there anything further we need to understand about why you chose to focus on this region in China? Yeah. Um...
0: No, I think I've kind of covered both of the... Because I generally would say that there's kind of a practical side to it and a conceptual side. So the practical side is that I had previously lived in Hainan. Um, I knew uh, I was involved in gay communities there. I had an interest in the region. So so there was kind of a practical element to why focusing on Hainan. But then also this kind of more, uh, I guess, academic interest in Hainan that it had been excluded from research on gender and sexuality in China. And and that exclusion is not specific to Hainan. It's kind of more general to uh, more marginal regions within uh, China. So like I said, that the fact that most of the literature has tended to focus on the biggest cities. And that's something that we see as well in more generally in global literatures on gender and sexuality, that there's been a propensity to focus on uh massive mega cities, global cities, relatively affluent cities, um, and less on the kinds of places where actually the majority of the world's population live, which is kind of what we might call an ordinary city. Um yeah, so so not your kind of New York, London, Berlin, Madrid, these kind of massive cities that where we in some extent there's some, it's kind of a a common sense that they're the kind of places where you would do queer research, but actually we need to think more broadly about kind of where are most people living and what kind of situations are they living in and see what queer lives mean in those kinds of contexts.
1: Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, Thank you for taking us through both of those aspects to it. Turning now to the everyday as the focus of the book, you have this great line that you're taking the everyday as the primary scale of analysis. What do you mean by this? And what do you think this opens up?
0: Okay. Uh, Yeah, so this, in in some ways, actually complicates some of what I just said about the reasons why I wanted to focus on Hainan. And it was something that came out from my early experiences in doing the fieldwork, which is where I went into this project thinking that this would be very much about Hainan. So I felt that the men that I spoke to would have a very clear sense of themselves that was colored by the fact that they were in Hainan and the particular uh, social and economic and political and cultural context of that region. And I found that that wasn't necessarily the case um, in some of the early interviews that I did and the, the kind of my own ethnographic reflections on the experiences that I was having living there. It didn't seem that Hainan was necessarily the most salient Scale to position the analysis at, so that wasn't what when they framed their experiences, they weren't framing those as because they live in Hainan, this is the way things are. So I became interested and kind of curious and also anxious a little bit about this question of scale. So what what are the scales that people see themselves living their lives at? And I couldn't find a very clear answer to that question. And this is where this notion of the everyday became very useful because it became a way for to apply a scale. So it became a framework for understanding what the research was about that didn't necessarily impose a preset geographic scale on the research, but instead it said, what are the things that matter to these people in terms of the way they are living their lives from one day to another in terms of the spaces that they find themselves in on a day-to-day basis the social relationships they experience and that they find meaningful in their day-to-day lives um so it, and 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 those can be multi-scale. So some aspects of that they may frame in a kind of a global sense. Some aspects of that they may frame in a hyper-local sense, but all of that is happening within their everyday lives and their everyday experience. So I think the everyday became really useful because it allowed me to capture lots of different, potentially different scales at which people experience themselves and their lives um, and to be open to that multiplicity. Um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of the, where why the everyday became important.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think helps us then kind of understand um, now getting into the kind of what did you find looking at it that way. So can we start with the scene? Because this seems kind of such a crucial part of this everyday experience. So what is the scene? And what does it mean to come into the scene?
0: This is a, a very good question and not one that I actually have a specific answer to, but I think that the lack of a specific answer sometimes tells us something about what the scene is or what the scene yeah, could be.
1: Exactly. Well, the ambiguity and well, the multiplicity yeah. of meanings is fascinating.
0: Yeah. So I, I found this, so this was, uh, so the Chinese term for scene is chuan, which, uh, I mean literally means circle. And in some, there's has been some research that's touched. So some research around, uh, gay men in China that has touched on this idea of chuan. um, I prefer to translate this as scene because I think the, the idea of a scene uh, speaks to the ambiguity that seemed to be characteristic of the experiences that I was told about when I asked about this idea of "tren" and what it means. There were lots of different elements to it, lots of ambiguous interpretations, lots of different ways of understanding what "tren" might be. And I felt it was less a circle with very clearly defined boundaries and more a scene, so where different elements could come in and go. A scene has a kind of spatiality to it that it takes place in a particular uh, setting, but a scene also has a kind of temporal element to it, that it has beginnings and endings and kind of temporal movement. So I thought, I felt this, I guess conceptually, translating it as scene was uh, felt very important. I mean, it also allows it, the the concept of scene and the way that uh, it's articulated by gay men and experienced by gay men in Hainan, it allows that to be connected to a much broader literature um, around the idea of gay scenes, which uh, I mean, it's quite common that we talk about the gay scene um, in Western contexts, which tends to mean a kind of commercial, uh, commercial venues for queer people. Um, in terms of what the scene is, for gay men in Hainan, the scene can be many things. So in the book, I talk about the scene. Um, so I look at the, firstly, the fact that the scene can mean many things and uh, use the concept of an empty signifier, which is a kind of a anthropological concept that speaks to the ways that we use certain concepts in our everyday lives, and they can take on different meanings in different contexts. So I wanted first to kind of clarify the fact that actually the scene doesn't mean one particular thing. It can mean many different things. Um, And then I go on to look at some of the occasions when the men that I spoke to did give more uh, definite, uh, more certain definitions of what the scene could potentially be. So I look at the scene as uh, a space of desire. So I found that one of the ways that the men tended to talk about the scene was in terms of a kind of certainty of their sense of sexual desire. Um, and so they would talk about coming into the scene. So the scene, I guess I should say, we we can't really talk about the scene and what it means without looking at the uh, the ways that gay men in Hainan spoke about what it means to come into the scene. And it was in those stories of how they came into the scene that their kind of understandings of what the scene might be were expressed. So some of the men talked about coming into the scene through a sense of confirmation of sexual desire, um, which could happen independent of sexual practice, but for a lot of the men, they associated the confirmation of sexual desires and their engagement in sexual practices with other men um, as kind of happening together. So some of the men would talk about coming into the scene as the first time that they had sex with another man And then within that, they would have different understandings of what sex meant and what kinds of sex meant coming into the scene. So for example, we have uh, kind of some of the participants who talked about um, that you might have a, so you might know gay men and you might be able to accept socializing with gay men and some forms of bodily contact, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've come into the scene. They would say things like, you might have sex with a man once, but that doesn't necessarily come into, mean you've come into the scene. But if you are regularly having sex with other men, then that means you are in the scene. So sometimes the scene was associated with a sense of uh, certitude around sexual desire confirmed through sexual practices. So that's kind of one definition of what the scene could be. Um, a Another way in which gay men talked about the scene was through practices of knowledge. So for some men, it didn't matter whether or not you, who you were having sex with. It didn't really have anything to do with sexual practices, but it was more about who you know. So they would talk about, um, if you know this person, this person, this person, that probably means that you're in the scene. Um, Or if this person knows you, then you are in the scene. They would also talk about knowing, kind of not knowing and knowing people, but knowing uh, specific places. So they would say, if you know where the gay bar is, where the cruising site is, and you know what the apps are for gay men, then you're in the scene. And so they would talk about the scene as a field of knowledge, really. And if you were within that and had access to that, that meant that you were in the scene. And so that's another definition of what the scene could mean then uh, kind of another way in which gay men talked about the scene was around a sense of emotional or social investment in your interactions with other gay men or other people in the scene so they would say things like it doesn't really matter if you say if you just have if you're just having sex with men, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are in the scene. But if you are hanging out with other gay men, if you have lots of gay friends, if you view other gay men as uh, socially and emotionally important in your life, then you are in the scene. So the scene became a kind of a field of emotional investment, um, in some ways a space of solidarity where gay men found a sense of similarity, companionship, and 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 yes, solidarity with each other. So the scene could be, like I say, kind of a, a field of emotional and social belonging in that sense. So the scene was lots of different things, um, and it it was very interesting to to. to try and follow, follow those different lines of inquiry and not really settle on one definition of the scene, but think about how this concept of the scene could work in different ways for different men um, that help them to make sense of who they are, who other people were, and what kinds of Collective belonging and identity they understand understood themselves as having mm.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey They can prescribe Fda-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, thank you for taking us through that. I think there are the different aspects of it, but one kind of thread that I noticed in common and that you've described there is kind of the focus on behaviors and on social sort of social networks, I suppose, um, rather than a kind of definitive like this You know, this statement or this thing, uh, it's very much the behavior and the social aspect to it. But you did mention as one of them, the kind of locations as being part of the important social knowledge. And in fact, this is something you explore in the book. So can you tell us a bit more about some of the key ways of mediating and understanding space and time that helped with this giving a sense of themselves and others?
0: yep and um, so, so I'll leave time to one side for now because I think maybe we'll talk a bit more about that in depth later and then and focus on space for for a second um. So in the book, I focus mostly, or or have a chapter in the book dedicated to the uses of geolocative uh, dating and hookup apps. So the kind of app where you open it and it shows you a grid of other users. And those people in that grid are arranged in terms of how far away they are from you. So that's kind of a geolocative technology. Um, So I guess I'll come back to that in a second. And uh, more generally, Key spaces for gay men, or sometimes, or what we would probably say are the spaces that make up the scene, um, tend to be, uh, so in the cities in Hainan, this is Haikou and Sanya are the two biggest cities, uh, where there are gay bars in both of those cities. So in those spaces, the spaces, the, the sites that are important for gay men and that make up this kind of the spatial dimension of the scene would be gay bars, uh, cruising areas, um, and then uh, yeah, those geolocative technologies as well when they're understood as a space. In other geographies in Hainan, there, are, there aren't specifically queer coded spaces like gay bars or cruising sites, but there are spaces, um, and I talk about some of these in the book, that have become known amongst local communities of gay men as spaces in the scene. Um, So one of the spaces that I talk about is in a particular town where gay men would meet on a regular basis to play mahjong in a particular, uh, particular space, a particular site in that town. And that became known as kind of amongst at least that small group of men as a kind of queer space. And there was also a tea house that they regularly met at. And there was also a particular spot in the park where they would meet. So there can be important spaces that aren't necessarily or Kind of more broadly recognized as gay or queer spaces and um, but that become important within small small networks of individuals um so i guess that's kind of a general sense of some mm-hmm. of the spaces that are important
1: yeah and then, and I, oh, just, sorry and i just I, I want to kind of uh mention highlight what you said about the the interaction of some of them are sort of explicitly gay coded spaces like a gay bar and some of them are like a bit of the park and putting them together i think is really helpful
0: yep yeah. And I think it, it also comes back to uh, these questions of ambiguity because, and, and questions of the scene and questions of knowledge, because not everybody will have the same kind of knowledge. So, so most most people will perhaps know that there is a gay bar in this city, but not everyone will know where it is or not everyone will have been. And then most some people may know that there's a cruising area in this city. But again, not everyone will know where it is. Some people won't know at all that it exists. And then in those smaller geographies, so looking at towns, those idea, those spaces where some gay men meet are not widely known. So the scene, again, it comes back to that idea that the scene can mean many different things depending on the knowledge that you have um, and how you participate in it. And so those spaces are important to that sense of ambiguity about what the scene can mean as well.
1: Mm, absolutely. I want to ask you about not just an ambiguity from kind of the multiple definitions you in some ways kind of collected from your interlocutors, but a particular Mm. statement that you talk about in the book being kind of quite shocking to you. And as a reader, I was like, oh, wow, what would I do if someone said that to me? Like, okay, Mm. that would definitely uh, require some thinking. And specifically what I'm referring to is you were speaking to one of your interlocutors, Mm. who in response, I believe, to kind of you explaining what you were researching responded with something along the lines of quote, gays in Hainan don't have lives.
0: Mm.
1: What insights did you take from that?
0: Yeah, this was, it it was something that really kind of knocked me back when, when the first time that that I heard it, but it also was something that I'd heard phrased in similar ways other, other times later on. Um, At the beginning, I, I didn't really know quite how to respond to it. And I felt very defensive and felt that it, it didn't make sense. But the more I thought about it, the more I started to think it, that there is something insightful in in this statement, that the parts of ourselves that we become to recognize as a constant dimension of ourselves that becomes a dimension of our lives and becomes something that we can... Live in a kind of continuous sense, and we can imagine ourselves as as being and being towards the future, so something that we will be throughout the extension of our lives. those things aren't aren't set in stone. So particularly around sexuality, it, it forced me to realize that actually this that these men might now, in this present moment, call themselves gay and understand that as part of their lives right now, that doesn't necessarily mean that being gay is framed as a kind of life with a longer trajectory or is thought about as something that extends indefinitely into the future um, or that can be said to characterize an entire life. So I, I don't I I don't know whether there was that Depth of thought behind that statement. It, w- it was by a particular friend of mine who is very a, a very interesting and has a very a lovely way of speaking and using certain phrases. And it may have just been a very offhand comment, but it became it, it resonated with so much of what later came out in the research in terms of the struggle of some of these men to understand being gay or understand their sexuality as something that may or may not fit within the broader trajectory of their lives and where they saw Mm. their lives heading. Um, So yeah, it kind of threw into into uncertainty, this question of this idea of gay lives in Hainan, that that statement embodies a kind of certitude, it embodies a sense that, people will think of their lives as gay, as being gay as something that characterizes their continuous ongoing lives, which wasn't necessarily always the case. So it kind of called all those things into question and opened those up as things to explore within the research rather than to to assume
1: in advance. Mm. No, that, that makes sense. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'd love to ask you about um, something you've briefly mentioned, and I think we'd like to go into a bit more detail about the uh, key app. Used by a lot of the gay men um, in many ways to create sort of scenes in these more ambiguous spaces. So, can you tell us about the app and especially its geolocation functions and what work this does to create scenes?
0: So, so the app that I uh, talk about in the book and have paid most attention to and was used most widely by by um, by gay men in Hainan, definitely, but also across China. Um, is Blued. So this is a Chinese-based geolocation app that is marketed towards gay men. Um, I guess I should also say Blued is actually the most popular app amongst gay men globally. Um, It has a a absolutely huge base and it's quite big uh, across Asia now. Um, So Blued, like I said earlier, is a geolocative app. It means that it shows you how far away other users are from you. And this has a really revolutionary effect in a place like Hainan um, where queer people aren't visible in public space explicitly. So, um, and queer people aren't widely discussed in mainstream media. There isn't a public discourse around sexual diversity. So for many people, their early experiences of sexuality were a sense of isolation, that they were perhaps the only person who experienced same-sex desires, um, that there, if there were other people, there weren't many of them, and they definitely weren't near you. So when they began using this technology, uh, the fact that it can clearly show you how far away you are from other uh, other users, and they would read other users as meaning other gay men, um, there may be various, lots of people who identify in different ways and experience different sexualities that uh, that use BlueD, but generally it would be talked about as you open this and it's a list of gay men. So, so I'll kind of stick within those those terms. So they so they would recognise this technology as being able to show you that other gay men do exist um, around you, that there are lots of them, and that sometimes they can be very close to you. And that has a really profound effect on what you imagine as the environment that you inhabit and who the other people in that environment might be. Um, so I guess it kind of queers or disrupts the sense that the spaces around us are firmly heterosexual, which is the kind of, that's the the pervasive assumption or the kind of sense that is dominant in, in Hainan and in China more broadly, and in many other places as well. Um, and these technologies disrupt that, they show that there are other, other queer people around you and you may potentially connect with them. So it, so it does something really fundamental for how we understand the sexuality of the spaces around us. In terms of how that then feeds into the production of, of queer spaces or gay spaces, um, what I noticed was that people would pay particular attention to distance on blued so and they would read that as a way of understanding the kind of population density of gay men in a particular area so i mean it's it's, it kind of sounds very straightforward and it is in a way that we if we're in a heavily densely populated area there are necessarily going to be more blued users in that area compared to whether we're in say in a rural area was lower population density and therefore the distances between people on blued could be like 10 kilometers 15 kilometers and they would take that as a way of recognizing the population density of gay men within different geographies so it became a way for them to understand different spaces in terms of sexuality and it would also work sometimes at a very local level so sometimes surprising areas would turn out to have high population densities of uh, gay men so say a particular shopping center i'm thinking of one space in haiko in particular where this particular shopping center has become known as a space where there are lots of gay men through the repeated action of people going to that place, opening blued, noticing that there are lots of people at very close proximity. And that space has kind of generated this, uh, this identity as a queer space through the use of that technology within that space and the way that it reveals the presence of other gay men.
1: Mm. What a fascinating example uh, to illustrate the point. Thank you for that. Staying on the sort of internet side of things here, um, I was fascinated by the discussion in your book about how important your interlocutors found to have photos on their online profiles and kind of the, just the amount and extent of thought that clearly went into, do I have a photo? What does it look like? How do I refer to it? How do I use it representationally? So I'm wondering if you can maybe talk us through a few of the importances that your interlocutors attach to this.
0: So, so I guess I would say the the first thing to say is that most people didn't use a photo of themselves on Blued, um, but we're still very concerned around this question of whether or not people should, whether or not they personally and other people should use photos of themselves. Um, And it speaks to the broader social environment of the kind of fears of exposure. So the vast majority of the men that I spoke to were not out to their families, were not out in their workplaces, were not out in educational settings, were not out in any setting that we might call outside of the scene. So it was only other gay men that knew that they were gay. Um, So lots of their kind of, their experiences in everyday life were shaped by a sense of, ang- of fear of being exposed or exposure. And this is why this idea of using, using your own photo or using a self portrait on Blued um, became a concern for them because it was a potential space of exposure. Mm. This then raises all sorts of questions about uh, how you interact with someone else if they're not using a self representative photo um and they particularly it became something that a lot of the men who did use photos of themselves uh would reflect on why others didn't and they would reflect on that in terms of talking about other people as uh not having a strong sense of identity not accepting themselves not being willing to kind of stand up and uh place their kind of the sense of real self and i'm doing air quotes around when i say real self to place their real self within their 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 sexual identity um so there came came to be these associations between between a kind of self-acceptance and the use of photos on blued um so it became one of the ways that some of the men reflected on the different degrees to which people may or may not kind of accept their their sexual identities was articulated through whether or not they used photos of themselves on Blued. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure I explained Mm. that particularly well, but uh, lots of of complex stuff going on there.
1: I mean, I think this is a useful moment to highlight that we are not getting into all of the details in the book, right? So I am asking you to kind of condense a lot of things into high-level, I suppose, summaries. But I think that idea of... um, Using a representational photo of yourself, using a real photo of yourself, is in some ways like a state, a very strong statement. And and there's a lot of debate about kind of oh that seems like such a big deal. I don't know if I would ever do that, but it's salient to the debates and conversations, even if very few people are doing it. Is that is that a correct understanding? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it. It, it spoke to an emergent kind of normativity amongst some of the men where they expected other gay men to kind of adhere to, I guess what we might call like an out and proud gay identity. And they in some ways looked down on people who weren't, do or they, yeah, they looked down on people who they saw as not doing that because they didn't use photos of themselves on Blued. Um, so, yeah, there's an emergent normativity about the ways that we should embody sexual identities and self-represent ourselves um, through these technologies.
1: No, that, that that's helpful to understand, um, especially kind of bring that together with something you mentioned earlier that I'd love to ask you a bit more about, which is the kind of expectations for what it means to be gay or what life is kind of meant to progress towards? um, Because with this uh, question you've just answered, I think we have a better understanding of the context of the fear and exposure aspect to it. So can we then go back to something you mentioned earlier, this idea of marriage, reproduction, what one's meant to be doing with one's life? How did your interlocutors conceptualize these sorts of expectations and develop their own plans?
0: So most of the men that i spoke to felt that marriage so heterosexual marriage and reproduction were inevitable um so they felt that that was something that would be part of their future and that had an impact on how they made sense of what they were doing in this present moment in terms of their investment in the scene their investment in a sense of sexual identity and the sense of permanence or impermanence that came to characterize that because they, they had a constant sense of a very certain future, which was marriage and reproduction. Um, and there are different reasons for that. So lots of people talked about a sense of duty to their parents, that their parents had raised them and they owed it to their parents that they would have a child and raise a child. So they felt a sense of responsibility to their parents to get married and have children. People were also very concerned about the question of care in later life. So the the norm in China is that uh, and again, many other places that you when you age and you need support, it's your children that primarily provide that support um, so a lot of the men would be concerned if I don't get married and have children, how am I going to look after myself when I'm older? So there was a kind of a sense of social pressure, but also this very real material pressure around who is actually going to look after me when I'm old, if I don't have children. So these were some of the fears and concerns that oriented a lot of the men towards viewing marriage and reproduction as essential parts of their future. And again, like I said, that had implications for what they understood themselves to be doing in this present moment in terms of this is they would talk about the scene and about being gay and around their relationships with other gay men as kind of this particular period of their lives. And then in the future they would move on to something different and move on to heterosexual marriage and reproduction. So there were some who were very certain that marriage and reproduction would be part of their futures. There were some who didn't want to talk about it and said I'll think about that when the time comes and would defer those questions and then there were a small minority of men who were very certain that they wouldn't get married and have children Um, and these tended to be the same men who uh, like I said before when we talked about uh, blued and self-representative photos these were the same men who would kind of have these normative ideas of like, you must be out and proud. You must embrace your gay identity. You must live your gay life. Um, They would be very clear that uh, gay men shouldn't get married to women and have children. Um, And they advocated that in their own lives and in their kind of interactions with other people it also was the case that those men tended to be the most economically privileged. So they were able to think about alternatives to marriage and reproduction in terms of who's going to care for them in later life. So amongst those men, some were perhaps thinking about uh, having children through surrogacy. Some were thinking about uh, and preparing for private uh, elder care. So, So they we're in a an economic position where alternatives to children as care providers became imaginable, or alternative ways of having children also became imaginable, which wasn't accessible for 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 most of the men that I spoke to.
1: Mm. Interesting to see how um different aspects of one's identity and position really can have influence on that, right? The the idea that class to a degree plays into this is an interesting finding. I'd love to kind of, in some ways, zoom out and ask you to kind of take a bunch of the things we've been discussing and uh, look at them sort of as one big group, because I think something that has come up consistently throughout what you've been telling us is ambiguity, is uncertainty, is kind of multiplicity of meanings and change, even between an afternoon and an evening, right, Um, or between one space and another, and. This is comes out so much in the work you've done. And I appreciated it in the book that you talked about uncertainty being kind of a thing we really need to take seriously as academics. So can you tell us a bit more about why you think uncertainty can be methodologically and conceptually powerful?
0: So I think methodologically, uncertainty is, is very useful. I guess it's a kind also a kind of humility in a way it's going into research where we say that I, I don't necessarily know for certain what i'm going to find in this research and even what i do find i don't necessarily know exactly what it means and perhaps it doesn't mean one thing or even the multiple things that it mean might not be certain so i think it's an important way of recognizing that so much of what one kind of people's everyday life experiences are often very ambiguous and uncertain and complex and two when we try and translate those into objects of research we should stay with that uncertainty and complexity rather than research being a process where we kind of streamline the ambiguity of everyday life and instead we can try and do research in ways that allow us to engage with that uncertainty and think about so how do people live through and with uncertainty and ambiguity in their lives. So I think it opens up uh, the possibilities for doing research where research isn't necessarily a process of making clear sense or coming to very clear conclusions, but opens up ways of thinking about how people live with uh, uncertainty um, and ambiguity in their lives.
1: Mm, Yeah, because there is so much uncertainty and ambiguity. So if we don't study it, uh, then we're probably missing out on a lot of things. So I think that's a very useful note to end our discussion of the book on. Um, But I do have a final question, if you'll allow. Uh, This book obviously is out and you're therefore no longer having to work on it. Is there anything you've been working on since or anything you're currently working on now that you'd like to preview or highlight?
0: Yeah, so, uh, yes, I'm working on a few things. Um, So things that are still related to uh, or coming out of the research and the work that I've done in Hainan. Um, At the moment, I'm working on, uh, because in the book, I mainly focus on the, when I talk about space in the book, it's mainly focused around these geolocative technologies. And I wanted to take some time to think about some of the other spaces so, some of the publications that I'll be working on, um, that I'm working on at the moment, and maybe over the next few months, we'll be looking at some of those other spaces that I've mentioned. So, around gay bars um, and those more ambiguous spaces that emerge in smaller uh, geographic settings. So, we'll be working on writing and thinking around that. Um, and then also, Kind of coming out of the book, the next project that I want to pursue is exploring in more depth those questions around aging um, and the possibilities for aging outside of heterosexuality in China. Um, So thinking about what are the the ways in which queer people are aging outside of heterosexuality what other kinds of lives are they imagining but also doing and putting into practice um, and are these always classed in the ways that they seem to be from this kind of limited work that i did in hainan or are there other, are there other things and other possibilities out there um, so yeah looking at some of those questions around aging and care for queer people um, in a, in a bit in a broader project i think perhaps more more widely across china than specifically in hainan hmm. Yep. Those then, sound like
1: interesting projects. What else?
0: Yep. So, so that is the work that's coming out of the book. And then I've also just uh, so the work that's coming out of the the research in Hainan. I've also recently finished another book, which is, uh, I guess, in terms of general themes, is somewhat related, but very different contexts. I recently finished a co-authored book um, with Jamie Hakim at King's College and Ingrid Young at University of Edinburgh. Um, which looks at uh, queer men in the UK and their experiences of intimacy through smartphone technologies. Um, And this will be out with Bloomsbury. It's called Digital Intimacies. It's hopefully going to be out probably in spring 2024.
1: Exciting. Well, congratulations on that um, and on all the projects, really. So best of luck pursuing them. And of course, while you're working on them, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Everyday Lives of Gay Men in Hainan, Sociality, Space and Time, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. James, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.